Now, I had a struggle as I started thinking about talking about sin and guilt because I don't sin as much as a lot of people. So I sat down with someone that I know does, and I said, Eric Rogis, tell me about your daily experiences. If you're new around here and you don't know Eric Rogis, trust me, that was hilarious. That's a comical thought, right? For anyone, some of you might be laughing because you know me and you know that's not true. But it's comical for anybody to ever get up in front of a group of people and say, I don't sin as much as everybody else. I don't have to deal with this whole thing of sin and guilt and all the repercussions of that. That's ridiculous. We all deal with that. In fact, the more we mature and grow in our relationship with Jesus, the more aware of our sin we actually become. And so as you progress in your faith, as you become more and more like Christ, you will become more and more aware of your sin. Now, today when we're talking about guilt, I'm not talking about the guilt that you might feel after a conversation with somebody that is very skilled at making people around them feel guilty for things. Like, I'm not talking about a manipulative sense of guilt that you feel that is put on you by someone else. Today, when we're talking about guilt, we're talking about the act of an offense, of a sin, of something that you have done, and it could be a sin of action where you've done something that you should not have done, or perhaps a sin of inaction where you have not done something that you know you should have done. There's the offense and then the emotional feelings that come with that. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about guilt. What happens when we sin and then the feelings that we bring and that we get as a result of that sin. And so we're going to look today at Psalm chapter 32. And I want to start by looking at the very first verse. We're going to look at all 11 verses of Psalm 32. And in Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2, it says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. So good news for all of us that are incredible sinners. When your sins are forgiven, there is a blessing that comes with that. There's a blessing that we can receive from God that comes as a direct result of him forgiving our sin. So high five the person next to you and say, hey, way to be a sinner because you've got a blessing coming your way. Okay? I should have heard more of, more of that. I should have heard more high-fiving. <laughs> blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Verse 2, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Now, in these couple verses, there are a few different words that the Bible uses to describe our types of sin. And in the first verse, we see the word transgression. And a transgression is a going away, a departure, a rebellion. And those are sins where we're focusing on God. We're rebelling against who God is. And we're saying to God, no thank you. I'm departing from you. I'm going my own way. 
Then in verse 1, we have the word that is simply written as sin. And the idea here is that we're falling short of a mark. Okay, so if you think uh, in terms of archery, a target, a bullseye. Not too long ago, one of my kids had an overnight field trip for school. They took them to this YMCA camp, and I went along as a chaperone, and they got to do all kinds of different activities. And one of those activities was archery. And so we've got all these elementary kids running around with bows and arrows in their hands, and it was like Hunger Games come to life. It was, it was amazing. But there were kids falling short of the mark all over the place. There was arrows flying high, arrows not making it close enough, to the left, to the right. And when we think of sin in those regards, we think of a sin against God's law, sin against God's will, God's way, that God says, okay, this, in this target, that's obedience. Anything outside of that target is sin. Anything at all, whether it's a mile outside of it or a centimeter outside of it, anything outside of that target is sin. We're falling short of the goal, of the mark that God has given us. And then in verse 2, we see the word sin again. That word could also be written as iniquity, which it will be later on in the chapter. And in that sin, we're thinking of something corrupt and twisted. And that's more of a sin along the lines of sin against who we are supposed to be. That God has a will and a plan for our lives. God has a calling for the types of people that we are supposed to be. And when we sin, we are corrupting that. We're corrupting that person that God wants for us. And of course, all of these sins have implications for our relationships with other people and the world around us and what that looks like. But I want you to know that because I want you to know that as we're talking about sin and guilt, we're covering the full spectrum here of sins. And Psalm 32 is written by an expert in sin. It's written by David. Now, King David, we get the picture of him and we read the account in 2 Samuel of this horrific, twisted, evil chain of sinful events that he found himself in. And it started by him not being where he was supposed to be. The Bible tells us at a time when kings are off in battle and at war, David was not. And oftentimes, when we make that first decision to not do what we're supposed to do, to not be who we're supposed to be, is when we see the cascading events of sin in our lives. And that's what happened with David. And so David is out one day and he sees this beautiful woman, Bathsheba, and he begins to have lustful thoughts for her. And so he has her brought to him. They have sex, which is, again, a corruption, a twisting of God's way because God created sex to be good and right within the context of marriage. And David and Bathsheba were not married. And so in that sense, they sin. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. David tries to cover this up. His cover-up plan does not go as he wanted it to, so he has Bathsheba's husband murdered. And then God sends Nathan, a prophet, to confront David because it appears that David is just kind of okay with all of this. And Nathan confronts David, and David then confesses his sin. 
And so we can read about the actual account of what happened in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. In Psalm 51, we can read the actual confession, the thing that David says in the moment when Nathan points out to him, hey, buddy, you've sinned in a major way, and you need to make this right. Psalm 32 that we're looking at today is when David has had some separation, some time after those events, and he's reflecting on what happened. He's reflecting on that chain of sinful events in his life. And he's had some distance after he's owned up to that. And now he's thinking about what happened and the implications of that. And so that's what we're reading. And for those of you that are sitting there, again, struggling with this sense of, man, I just can't get rid of this guilt. I would guess that there are not many of us here today that have done anything close to what David did. The premeditated, fully thought out, thought through, involving other people, conspiracy, to sin and cover up that sin. And if you have, don't underestimate the power of Almighty God. If God is able to restore and forgive David, if God is able to restore and forgive Mike, if God is able to restore and forgive the rest of us in this room, I mean, look around this room. God is certainly able to forgive and restore you. Verse 3. David says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And the first thing I've put in your outline there is silence, guilt's burden. When David was silent, his bones were wasting away. His strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. He felt this incredible weight, this incredible burden that he could not get rid of. Why? Because he was silent. Because he thought, I'm just not going to say anything. People won't find out. I'll just give it a little time and a little distance and things will get better. And that obviously did not happen. And all of us know that that doesn't happen because all of us have tried that approach. All of us have had something that we have done that we knew was not right. And we've just kind of tried to sweep it under the rug or ignore it. And it does not go away. And it's because one of the greatest weapons that guilt has in your life is your silence. And we keep silent because we feel like, oh man, what will they think of me if I say that? What if, if it comes out, if people find out, what will happen? And silence is not the way to go. David gives us a picture of what is the way to go as we keep reading. Verse 5. 
Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So again, we see all three words there that we talked about earlier, all three uses of that word sin. David is covering the spectrum for us here. I acknowledge my sin to you, did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Confession is guilt's release. If you want to be released from the burden of guilt, if you want to be released from the power of guilt in your life, if you want to be released from the oppressive feeling that comes with guilt, confession is the way to be released from that. When David acknowledged his sin, when he owned up to it, when he confessed it, that's when he started to feel the strength and the renewal of God in his life. And I love the picture that we get of God here. God is ready and waiting to be our help. You ever come across somebody that refuses help when they so obviously need it? Right? Sometimes it's a little bit comical. Somebody's trying to carry a bunch of things and it's obviously too much for them and things are falling and they keep stopping and picking them back up and then they're trying to get through the door and they can't. And you go, hey, you need a hand? Can I help you? No, no, I got it. I'm good. Right? Okay, are you sure you're good? Because those frozen peas have fallen on your bag like three times. I, it's really not a problem for me to help you. No, no, I'm good. I got it. And sometimes it's not so comical when it's pertaining to an area of their lives that's hurting them and hurting the people around them. But God is ready and waiting here to be our help. God is waiting for us to come and confess to him. And can I give you a little tip here as it relates to God and your confession? You're not going to surprise him when you actually confess. He's kind of already very much aware of what happened. Right? When David confessed, it didn't help God. God wasn't watching saying, I'm not sure, but I think something's going on there. Nathan, can you go look into that for me? When David confessed, it helped David, and it helped the people around him. It wasn't for God's benefit. It's not for God's benefit that we confess. It's for our own benefit that we confess our sin. There's a difference, too, that we see in this verse from when we try and cover up our sin to when God covers up our sin. In verse 7, it says, You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble. See, when we confess, God then chooses to cover over our sin. When we remain silent, we're the ones trying to cover up our sin. When I was a kid, me and one of my older brothers were playing basketball uh, in our living room. And yeah, it's not a, you can see it's not going to be a good ending. 
My parents weren't home, obviously, hence the basketball in the living room. And I had a clear breakaway. And from behind, I was shoved pretty hard. Flagrant foul with the ball and the shot. It was, it was blatant. And I got shoved into our living room window, which shattered. And so my brother and I came up with this incredibly elaborate, detailed plan of how we were going to cover that up. We closed the drapes. <laughs> we, and we thought, surely with the drapes closed, it will be years before anybody finds out about this offense. And just to play it safe, we decided not to stay in the living room, and we went off into another room. We were probably reading our Bibles or something. I don't remember exactly what we were doing. But not long after my parents came home, we heard my father um, very gently, lovingly summoning us to his presence. <laughs> when you try and cover up your own sin, you're just pulling the drapes on a broken window. But when God steps in and chooses to cover over your sin, it's like that window is brand new, pristine, never been touched before. And the way that happens is as we confess. So how do you confess? What does that look like? Well, thankfully for us, we have a senior pastor that wrote a book a few years ago called Prayer Coach. And in it, there's an entire chapter that deals with confession and how to confess. So I would encourage you to pick that up and read it. But I'm going to give you the bullet points really quick. The first thing is that we need to take time to sit down and have an exhaustive look at our lives and our actions and our attitudes and our words. And don't let too much time go by in between times when you do this. Figure out a good rhythm for yourself of what that looks like. Get alone, get away where it's quiet, where you can focus and review your life and your interactions with people. And think through in what areas have I sinned? You know, certainly in the moment, there's times when we sin and we realize it and we confess it right then. And that's great and that's necessary. But we also need those times where we're a little more focused and we're taking time and we're really owning up to What's going on? What have I done? So take some time. Be exhaustive with it. Acknowledge the implications and the results of your sin. Right? I mean, if David had stopped at any point along the way to think about what the implications were of his sin, how different would his actions had been. But even after the fact, we need to do that. Because if we're going to confess, we want to fully confess to what's going on, not just a surface confession, which also leads to think through what's the root problem that's going on in your life. You know, like, yeah, I yelled at my kids, and that was wrong because of my attitude and my motivations in doing that, and I shouldn't have done that. But why did you yell at your kids? What's going on in your life that caused that? Yeah, I had a bad attitude toward my teacher at school, or I disobeyed my parents, and that's wrong, and you need to confess that. But why? What's going on? Is there something going on in your life that you're worried about, 
And because of your worry and not giving something over to God, it's causing you to be short-tempered with people. Is there something that you're fearful about or anxious about? Are there other things that you're trying to cover up and just the weight of that is leading you to these actions over here? What's the root behind your sin? And confess it. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. And we see that with David in Psalm 32. In verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. When we confess God forgives. God doesn't keep us at arm's length and say, you know what, I appreciate the confession, but I'm not really sure if it's genuine, and so I'm going to need you to do these three things before the confession takes. God's forgiveness is immediate. And David experienced that, and David writes about that, and we can experience that too. So confess your sin to God and know that the forgiveness is there. Sometimes we hold on to our guilt after the confession. Sometimes we confess, but we still hold on to that guilt and don't give it up. And I thought about why that is, and I think there's a couple things. The most important is probably that um, guilt is an emotion, right? Guilt has emotional components to it. Forgiveness is not an emotion. When you confess, in God's eyes, you are declared forgiven. But sometimes we hold on to the guilt because we're still living in the emotion of what happened and the repercussions of that. And I would suggest to you that if you go to God and you confess your sin to him and you choose to continue to live in guilt, I would say that part of that is a choice. And I'm not minimizing sin or its effects. But when we choose to hold on to our guilt, what we are minimizing is the work of Christ on the cross. When we confess and God says, you are forgiven, and we say, well, hold on, God, I'm not so sure I'm, I should be forgiven, we are devaluing the work of Jesus on the cross. We need to confess to God and sometimes we need to confess to other people, right? Sometimes we need to confess to the people that we've sinned against. Sometimes it's good to have people in our lives that we trust, that we can go to and say, hey, here's where I've blown it. Can you pray for me about that? Can you continue to ask me about that? And I have people like that in my life. And some of you, maybe you've never confessed anything to anybody. And I'm going to challenge you to do that today before you go home. 
If there's something as we've been talking about guilt that has been rattling around in your mind of something that, yeah, I've got this thing and I've never really owned up to it and I need to confess that, I don't want you to leave with the intentions of, yeah, I'll do that. Every service around here, at the end of each service, we have people that are available to pray with you. And I'm going to challenge you today before you leave, if you need to confess something to somebody, go to those people and confess to them, and they will pray for you. They have been very well trained not to do things like this. Okay? You will not get that type of reaction. You will get a loving response of prayer and concern. Some of you, you need to make the initial confession. You've never surrendered your life to Christ. You've never submit your life and your will to him. You've never said, Jesus, I have sinned. I know what you've done for me on the cross, and I want to put my life in your hands. And some of you, you, you know what you need to do. You know how to do it because you've been here week after week and you've heard us talk about it, but for whatever reason, you've just never done it. And so today, before you leave, walk back to the Welcome Center, talk to somebody, say, I want to confess my sin. I want to begin a relationship with Jesus today. I'm tired of just being here and hearing about it and seeing other people experience it. I want to experience it. And if as I'm saying those things and you're hearing them, if your heart is beginning to race a little bit, if you're getting a feeling of nervous energy, you're the one that needs to take those steps. And I would encourage you not to ignore that. Because if you ignore a prompting of God, the next time God prompts you, it becomes even easier to ignore that same prompting. The longer you sit and hear what you're supposed to do and refuse to do it, the harder it's going to be. So figure out for you today what your next step is related to this and take it before you leave this place. Verses 8 through 10. David is now writing in the voice of God to us. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. God is going to instruct us and teach us. Obedience is guilt's prevention. If you want to prevent yourself from having to deal with feelings of guilt and the burden of guilt, the antidote to that is obedience, obeying God, following in his ways. And I know when we talk about obedience, I know especially as we talk about it, sometimes around a topic like guilt, 
And there are some of us in here that say, yeah, but I've got this, I've got this thing, this one thing that I just can't beat. It's a pattern. And I've tried and I've tried and I tried, but I can't. I would say, stop trying so hard and start trusting more. Because when we try and we try and we try, it's about us. It's our ambition. It's our determination. It's we're going to do it. But when we trust, we say, okay, God, I'm going to actually believe what your word says. And I'm going to believe that your Holy Spirit truly does live in me. And I'm going to believe that when you call me to something, you empower me and you enable me to be the person you're calling me to be and see what happens. It's not going to be a life of perfection, but it will be a life of faithful obedience. Because when God calls us to be someone... When God calls us to do some things, he always, every single time, empowers us and enables us to be and do who he's calling us to be. You ever see somebody playing with a dog or a little kid? Not that I equate those two in my mind, but... And, you know, maybe they've got a toy or something and they're kind of holding it out in front of... We'll stick with the dog for now. They're holding it in front of the dog. And the dog kind of jumps at it and they pull it away. And they do it again and the dog jumps at it and pulls it away. Like it's funny a couple times, but after a while it's just teasing and it's just mean, right? That's not who God is. God doesn't say, hey, there, here's this life of freedom from guilt and obedience with me. Come try and get it. Whoop, no, no, sorry. God doesn't do that to us. If God says it's possible in his word, he makes it possible for us. Not in our strength, not in our ability, but in his. And so some things that have helped me grow in my obedience, again, far from perfection, but more obedient than I used to be, is I've tried to really weigh in my mind in moments of temptation, truly, what is better? Like, I know the guilt that I'm going to feel if I give in to this temptation and sin, especially if we're talking about those patterned things, those things that we're kind of stuck in, right? It's not new. We've done it before. We know what's going to happen afterwards. Like, we know the, the momentary, temporary thing that we're after, the feeling, the convenience, the, I'm just going to get away with this and nobody's going to see it and it's going to be easier. And the, like, we know all that. And we also know the guilt that comes afterwards. We know the repercussions that it has and what it does to our relationship with God, what it does about the person God's calling us to be, what it does to our relationships with other people. And so I've tried to stop in those moments of temptation and really get a moment of clarity and say, truly, what is better? I've also prayed more and more and just said, God, cause my love for you to grow. 
right? God is the one that calls us to himself. We can't love God in ourselves. He makes that possible. And so I thought, maybe it's not a bad thing to pray and ask God to cause my love of him to increase so that when I'm in those moments weighing my relationship with God, my love of him, my faithfulness to him, me being used by him and sin, that, you know, it'll be an easier choice. And the other thing that I've tried to do probably more recently within the last year, even six months maybe, is picture Jesus in my mind being with me. When I'm sitting in a meeting, I try and picture him with me. When I'm alone in my car or when my family's in my car, I try and picture him with me. When I'm walking through the grocery store, when I'm flipping through TV channels, when I'm listening to things on the radio, when I'm engaged in conversation with people, when I feel my blood boiling at my children, I try and picture him with me. And it makes a difference because if Jesus were physically right next to us every moment of every day, I think we would make some different choices as it relates to our obedience and our sin. Another one of my special tips for you. Guess what? Jesus is with you every moment of every day. Not physically, but he's there. So do what is helpful for you to live in that reality, to live in that truth. In just a minute, the worship team is going to come back out. And we're going to continue worshiping God through singing. We're going to continue worshiping God through our giving and our offering. And verse 11, the last verse of Psalm 32, is a great verse to read just before we do that. Because David says, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. You who are righteous. Not because of yourselves, not because of what you've done. You're righteous because of what Jesus did for you. Sing, rejoice, and be glad. And so as we give worship and thanks to God with our offering, as we give worship and thanks to God with our singing, do that with a sense of freedom from guilt because of the work of Jesus on the cross. And don't ever underestimate that work for you. Let's worship God together.